Hello and welcome to Incubation Time, a podcast where two grad students discuss the news like they know what's going on. I'm Will Eisenman. And I'm Anos Eisenman. So you're back from Italy, uh, looking less pale, uh, tanned, yeah. another white person might say. Yeah. I, I won't. Okay. But, uh... Okay. That's... <laughs> it's only a little bit hurtful. But... <laughs> Yeah, I got to spend some time outside, which is a nice change of pace for my life in Baltimore. But yeah. Um, yeah, and it was a really cool experience. I got to go to my first like tiny conference, so um, I got to meet a whole bunch of people in the field that I work in, and which was in itself a little bit hard, you know, because I kind of went alone-ish. I went with my boss, but I wasn't gonna just like hang out with her like follow her around the whole time no matter how cool your boss is no yeah you you can't do that yeah yeah i feel the same way because i also was kind of like you know she clearly like knows a lot of people in the field it was good with for her to like catch up with her friends and i was not gonna just like awkwardly stand behind her the whole time (laughs) like hi i'm also here you know (laughs) it would have been so bad so yeah i tried to like branch out a little bit and meet some people and my strategy was basically find the other person who looks lonely (laughs) which Always good. Which worked out, you know, mm-hmm. at least at least twice. So that's what I do before closing time oh, in the bar. Oh yeah. <laughs> How's that work out for you? <laughs> Not great. Not great. Not great. Okay, yeah. We'll uh, work on it. It'll yeah, be, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess I, the difference, I guess, between the bar scenario and here is that, or in the conference, is mm-hmm. that the conference they're giving out free alcohol. So sure, that's nice. And you have an end, like they and, do yeah, similar things. And we work on the same thing, yeah. So yeah, I was basically just like walking around with like two glasses of prosecco, and just like finding the lonely person and being like, "Hi, what type of CMT do you work on?" And <laughs> just giving them the yeah, other glass. Like, Here's the other one. Okay, okay. I so, was concerned that you were double fisting. Also, the yes, time. but you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all have our coping mechanisms. <laughs> yeah, but it was totally different from a big conference which is like another the last one I had been to yeah and I think that's all that I know mm-hmm. I mean there were like big conferences back in Mexico but uh, I feel like there are universal rules uh, in every big conference like there are people that you recognize oh yeah uh, all the time yeah. like there's always an antagonistic person that just asks to get a rise out of oh, the speaker. Yeah. And the sad reps who just kind of sit at their benches like oh, waiting know. for people to come talk to them. I know those are that those are pretty pretty sad. Um, I would say there's someone that always just parties too hard. Oh yeah. Like you never see them in the morning. The guy who doesn't even pretend to be there for the science. Exactly. Yeah. The, uh, the over networker. Oof. That's yeah. uh yeah, that's a rarity in science. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like yeah, scientists are weird. extremes. Yeah, yeah. Either they don't talk to anyone or they are way too much like just trying to give their card because yeah. obviously the over networker has, has a business, business card. card. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and just go around to everyone. Yeah. It's, it's not the a best thing. is when you have like the over networker isn't is a grad student, right? And it says like graduate student I know. or like PhD candidate. Ugh. I even like cringe a little when I write PhD candidate on my emails. Yeah, oh, I don't do that. Because it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I just say indentured servant. <laughs> <laughs> they get it. Yeah, yeah whoever, they know. They know. They know. Yeah. It's a uh, uh, truth in, ad- in advertising, yeah. essentially. Yes, yeah. I'm um, all about transparency. <laughs> They're really, uh, it's also really interesting because like big conferences obviously attract great keynote speakers so you get that from them Mm -hmm. but then there's so many people that everything is stacked up against uh, each other like there's three different rooms yeah and you're trying to go 
room A for from like eight to nine, and then room C from nine to ten. Right. But then it's going to go around. over. You know, the eight to nine one is definitely ending at nine thirty. I know because no one, no one checks the like. They no don't one, respect the time. They don't respect the time. No one has this spine to be like. Hey, person I admire and want to collaborate with. Right. You, you have gone over. Down. Exactly. Yeah. You need to just sit down because we need to respect everyone else's time. Mm-hmm. That never happens. No. So you go from room A, you run to room C, and then it's like an hour until the people that you want to hear are actually speaking. Right. It's just... It's like the timing is always... It's insanity. Fun. So... Yeah. Um, I mean, this most recent one that I was at, they had these very strange things I'd never heard of called oral posters, where they just, like, selected a couple of, like, posters that they liked a lot, I guess, and mm-hmm. then those got to give a three-minute talk. Okay. And so, I think normally what it's supposed to be is, like, hi, this is my hypothesis, this is the, these are the methods I used, come see my poster at the poster session. Right. But then you have, like, the established PIs who are, like, I'm going to give my 30-minute talk in three minutes. <laughs> and it, like, never works. And then they're just, like, trying to speed read slides and they're like point like the lasers are flying everywhere <laughs> it is insane i feel like the worst is when they act surprised that they couldn't fit it into three minutes yeah yeah that's the best when they're like oh if i had more time like well, you weren't given more time exactly they, they were told they, this months ago they're given like yeah. eight minutes because again no one has a spine in, in right, conference. Right, yeah. and uh and then they're just like oh really and they act surprised like <laughs> yeah what? well the best is when they get offended because there's i'm sorry there are no time for questions and they're like what do you mean no time for questions yeah. oh because you used your eight minutes of question time that exactly. we had built in no <laughs> yeah i don't know anyway so i feel like this is why there's a guy that parties too hard yeah because then if you just focus on the academic stuff you get stressed. Look at how stressed we are talking about I know. About I know. Um, <laughs> so much anxiety over So clock. just, you know, it, it's it's a matter of keeping a balance between things. Yeah. Like uh, in Mexican conferences, it's really common to, uh, for the last night to have a dinner, and then they bring out like a band, and you're supposed to have like a dance party. That's weird. Super weird, right? Yeah. That's I mean, for, for an American person, yeah, no. that never happens. Um, so the the... European and American speakers that we tend to invite to Mexican conferences think the same thing. Yeah. But they're caught off guard. And so they're just enjoying their dinner. Right. And all of a sudden, just like, music appears. Okay. Um, so what are they doing? Are they just like they're just grabbing like, okay. the bottle of wine and sinking lower and lower into their chair? No, or? no, no. They're just like, well, okay, I guess there's going to be music accompanying dinner. And then they see everyone leave their seats uh-huh. and start dancing. Um, and eventually, they actually party more than... All of us combined, but oh, yeah, they start just like, oh, I don't understand this. But somehow they end up enjoying themselves, and you know, I feel like even though that's not the poster session or the talks, a lot of the good networking, future collaborations happen in that space. Yeah, I don't know about like necessarily specifically that space. I I agree with you though that like at these conferences we kind of all sit around and. A dinner or something or maybe I mean I haven't been to one of these like crazy like disco conferences that you have been to <laughs> but um, like you sit around a dinner with a bottle of wine and you know you drink a little bit and you know we're right. scientists we talk about science like that's inevitably what happens and that's how you get a lot of like I think the like more cool ideas and the like more interesting collaborations come from just kind of like loosening up a little bit and just kind of yeah. shooting the shit and talking some science with random people but still, I, I propose that there should be like a dance, kind of a, like a party at the end of, of every big conference. I feel like good things would come out of that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just think that's, <laughs> I, I like my boundaries <laughs> solidly where they are. Yeah.
Okay, so now we're going to talk about drug pricing, just like we had uh, promised you guys. Uh, it has been a really hot topic on the news. Uh, today, uh, September 21st, the makers of the EpiPen faced a congressional hearing. They probably got some stern words, but uh, I'm not sure what will come out of that. Um, and so before we talk about what we can change, we wanted uh, to understand the problem. And of course, Will and I are not uh, policy experts, so we brought a guest, uh, Liz Frasica, who was introduced to us by, by Laura Cohen, uh, our producer. And so uh, Liz is an MD student who uh, took some time off to pursue an MPH. Uh, she worked on uh, generic drug shortages and how those affect uh, the price of generic drugs. And she's currently working with the Maryland state government to improve healthcare delivery. So one of the really interesting things that we found out from Liz when we were prepping for this episode was that nearly one in 10 prescriptions go unfilled due to cost. Uh, and I found that statistic very strange because you'd think that drug companies would price drugs so that they would be most widely bought, that you wouldn't ever have a scenario where a drug would be too expensive because the company wants to sell as much drug as possible. Right, and so in, in this part of the, the drug business, there's really a difference between the end user or the patient and the people that are actually buying the drug from the pharmaceutical company. So what you're saying is that when I go to CVS to pick up a prescription, I'm not the actual buyer. Like I'm the user, the end user of the drug, but right. I'm not the technical buyer and from you, a supply demand perspective. Exactly. And you buy the drug, obviously, right? but uh, you're, not, you're not the main agent setting the price. And so we'll try to ex explain the system that actually is in charge of, uh, of setting the price. And so again, that's why we have Liz here. So Liz, if you don't mind, could we, could you give us, give us a brief overview of the system from the pharmaceutical company to the patient? Absolutely. So in general, the drug manufacturer, whether it's for a generic or a brand name drug, is the one that actually is producing this medication. From there, they work with one of these third-party intermediaries to eventually get the drug to the hospitals and the pharmacists and then to the patient. This entire network is pretty shrouded in secrecy and not really reported on anywhere, um, but they actually play a really critical role in negotiating bulk purchases of drugs for the people on the other side of the equation. Gotcha. And so I think uh, one of the first questions is, if they're buying in bulk, Usually we associate buying in bulk with discounts, uh, like in Sam's Club or other um, big uh, bulk purchasing stores. Um, so do they reduce the price? Do they negotiate the price with the company, with the pharmaceutical companies? Yes. So they negotiate discounts. Uh, they also negotiate rebates. Okay. There are also cash incentives that get paid. So what are, what are rebates? So... Rebates are like when you order a pair of glasses or contacts from 1-800-CONTACTS and they send you a little coupon in the mail and it's like, get $20 off when you mail in this rebate. Um, so it's money that's given back to you okay. after the fact. So you pay the full price, but then they give you money back after the fact. Correct. Whereas discounts, those are applied up front. So you get a 20% discount. Okay, so they're negotiating on the list price or, or the price that is set up by the by the pharmaceutical companies, uh, they obviously end up paying less or a, or a net price. Do we have any idea what those numbers are? Are they way lower? 
Actually, uh, the first time in the IMS Health uh, 2015 report, uh, Medicines Use and Spending in the U.S., uh, they reported this net price. That is significant because that price takes into account all of the rebates and discounts and cashback bonuses um, that the manufacturers are paying out. So it's, it's a more accurate um, representation of what pharmaceutical manufacturers are uh, charging for their drugs. Okay. When you look at the 2015 report, of the 420-something billion dollars spent on drugs, over a hundred billion of it was in these extra third-party rebates, discounts, cashback fees. So it's making up a pretty substantial portion. Okay, but like if you if you just look at this net price, do you still see increasing healthcare costs, or or do they go away? Nope. Yeah. So prices are definitely still increasing um, for the net price and the list price, um, but actually the difference between the rate of growth for the list price and the net price is getting bigger. And it's actually widened significantly, like almost tenfold in the past couple of years. But that would mean they're doing a better job negotiating prices? It means that more of the money from what the manufacturer initially charges for the drug is going to these third parties in the form of discounts and rebates and other payments. And mind you, all of that is, for the most part, private and contracted. The federal government and mm -hmm. Medicaid do um, have significant rebate programs that accounts for a chunk of that as well. Um, but that's where things get hairy. All right, but uh, I still don't get why doesn't this translate into lower prices? Well, it does translate into some decrease in prices, but going back to the manufacturer, the manufacturer is like, caught in this cat and mouse game with this like group of third parties where the third parties are doing a good job of negotiating with all these rebates and kickbacks, then the manufacturer just raises the list price on the drug. So the list price keeps getting higher, they keep negotiating. And that just gives you like a slow, steady increase in price. So there's some negotiation, mm -hmm. but because of this cycle of continuing uh, raising the price and negotiating, slowly creeps up the price that we ultimately pay. Yeah, and a bigger chunk of that uh, negotiated money is going to these third parties. And what's really not clear is like how much of that is getting back to the patient or to the hospitals or to the right. pharmacies on the other side. They all can change the price at any point along the way in the system. There are multiple sets of negotiations right. that take place. The only checks and balances are each other. Exactly. Okay. And so how does that translate to kind of care for the patient? Is the patient just sort of like a number for these people or like how does the patient factor in at all into anything that like these third party people are doing? Yeah, like particularly for that third party group, I don't really think they care very much about the patient. They care about negotiating the best deal and keeping their contracts going and like theoretically saving money, but even that part is a little fishy. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think unfortunately in this whole system, the patient is the one that suffers and it's terrible because nobody understands the system, so they can't do anything about it. They don't have a specific policy they can point to to say, this is what we need to change because they're like, oh, it's just all intransparent. I don't understand any of it. Yeah, I mean, it seems very, very complex. And I guess from like a, I guess the patient being at the end of this chain, if if these prices are increasing, is are they ultimately sort of protected by insurance if they have it? Or are they insulated from these increases in price or are they still 
feeling the impact of that in some other way? Yeah, um, so insurance will help with part of it, um, but there are also a lot of complications around insurance policies. So patients will still have to pay co-pays a lot of the time. Um, they'll also have a, a co-insurance policy where the insurance will cover 80% of the cost, but then the patient's responsible for the other 20% we need to think about the cost exposure for patients. And that's not easy to quantify or to calculate because everybody has a different insurance plan with different rules around how much the insurance company will cover. In general, we're seeing more people on like catastrophic plans and high deductible plans. And so that means you have to pay more out of pocket before the insurer will cover it. So people are feeling the burn from drug yeah. prices more because yeah. uh, of that. I feel like, uh, yeah, a lot of people are pointing to the fact that we have moved to a lot of high deductible plans. They they had, um, blame that for the outrage over the EpiPen. Yeah. Oh, and the point I want to make about that is that the when you don't have uh, insurance coverage for that piece, a lot of times you'll be paying the list price for the drug. Right. So as the manufacturers and these third parties are caught in this game of steadily increasing the prices, negotiating, mm -hmm. the patient is the one that has to pay for this increased list price. Uh, right, right. So uh, uninsured patients and really high deductible uh, insured mm -hmm. uh, people with high deductible insurance plans have to bear this cycle of mm -hmm. constant list uh, price increase. Um, right. And so that's, I feel like Mylan, the, the, the uh, company that produces the EpiPen, originally tried to increase the price, um, you know, and try to funnel it through the opaque system, but now the proportion of patients that actually pay the list price is way higher. And so I think that's where a lot of the yeah. outrage came from. Yeah. Um, and so... Also, it was a really sudden increase, so it was particularly visible. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. And it was like a drug that had been around for a long time mm -hmm. that wasn't, like, they didn't do anything except for, like, the auto-injector, but other than that, it wasn't like yeah. a... Yeah. And so... I'm really glad you touched on that because uh, I feel like there is a social contract that was signed between the pharmaceutical companies uh, and the people of the United States in which, you know, we were to grant patents to the companies um, in exchange for an innovative drug. And uh, that would be priced according to the innovation that it brought. But once the patent expired, we could have really cheap generics um, that would offer a lot of value uh, in the healthcare space. So when you see a price increase in the generic space, it's particularly egregious to people. An example of this is that when Sobaldi, the cure for hepatitis C came out, and it was priced at $100,000 per um, treatment, there was a, some outrage about it. But once people came out and realized the value that it uh, offered our healthcare system, that went away. But when Shkreli increased 5,000%, the price of Daraprim 5,000%, or Balin Pharmaceuticals did a similar thing, or now with EpiPen, people, uh, the outrage that, that people have doesn't go away. Um, this is particularly important because most prescriptions are generics, and the market is supposed to ensure really lower prices uh, due to competition in the generic space. So, so what is happening here? So to your first point, absolutely. Today, 88% of all prescriptions uh, filled are generics. And in general, uh, the Hatch-Waxman Act, uh, which established the generic drug industry back in 1984, has been highly effective at keeping drug expenditures um, for the United States at bay as a whole, um, compared to what we would have had otherwise. 
generics are different from brand name drugs and that they're pretty much only able to compete on price. So if we're looking at the new hepatitis C drugs like Harvani and Zavaldi, they may have slight differences in efficacy, different side effect profiles that could theoretically justify uh, differences in price. Generics are all pretty much identical. So in economic terms, the way we, we talk about a good that can only compete on price is, is we call it uh, a perfect substitute. Generic drugs are, are near perfect substitutes. And when that happens, that means there's actually really steep price competition. So it may seem counterintuitive, but in some cases, people are actually starting to say generic prices are too low. Um, so for a given generic drug company, say you're the first manufacturer to enter the market, mm -hmm. and somebody else starts making that drug, the price of a drug may drop like 30%. Um, and for every additional competitor, the price keeps going down. At some point, this gets to be unsustainable or not financially profitable for all of the manufacturers in the market making this generic drug. Mm. You know, we have the $4 list at Walmart. That's like pretty cheap. Um, and so recently one proposal was to set up a minimum uh, price for certain drugs because we don't want it to bottom out. Uh, because the consequence of what happens when the price gets too low and it's not sustainable for all the manufacturers is you have them starting to exit the market. We have an industry where it's really difficult for people to enter the market because they have to go through and spend a lot of money on the ANDA application and getting their facility set up. It's a pretty significant investment um, on the front end. But on the back end, if you're a company and you say, well, it's not worth it anymore, I'm not getting a good return on investment, you can just leave and start making something else. And even though drug manufacturers have this kind of social contract to provide these medications, there's really no penalty um, for them to leave. And who ends up suffering in the end? Again, patients. Um, when that happens and when you have uh, people leaving and when you have a failure of supply and demand uh, to be met, we talk about that as a market failure. That's exactly what we're seeing in the phenomenon of drug shortages. And we've actually seen a dramatic consolidation of a lot of generic drug manufacturers because people are progressively leaving the market so you have fewer and fewer people controlling a bigger uh, percentage of the overall production. That's a big part of, uh, part of shortages because when you only have two people in the entire country or two manufacturers manufacturing uh, the entire country's supply of saline and one of them has a quality failure because, again, they're not profiting from making saline so they didn't bother to invest in keeping their facilities up to date, something goes wrong, you suddenly just lost 50% of the supply for the country. There's no way that the people are going to be able to ramp up production in time to get out all the medications that people need. And so that's kind of what's going on there. Does that raise prices as well? Because we touched on shortages. But. Yeah, sorry. Um, so that also contributes to these price increases because of that monopoly uh, Martin Shrelke effect. When one or two people control the entire market, they can have more control over where the price is. So at. why then wouldn't more companies then enter the market again to bring the price back down? So they do. So if you actually look at the applications for new drugs, I'm sure there are a lot of people that are now trying to uh, apply to make Daraprim right. because the price has gone up again. So, you know, it, eventually the market corrects itself, but it's problematic when you have those volatile swings in prices because you can't enter as quickly as you can leave. Ah, and that's just because of the like red tape it takes to enter the market. Exactly. And so th there's no like real protection for people exiting the market. And, 
you know, I'm not even sure there should be because you could say, oh, well, we're going to fine you if you're a, a manufacturer and you decide to exit the market. Well, then they could just raise their prices and then the patients would eat the cost in the end, potentially. Right. Right. So. All right. So we just talked about how to maybe come up with solutions for this generic price increase problem. Uh, what are other ideas that have been bounced around to uh, conf for confronting this, this issue? Yeah. So I guess one of the most common things you hear is the need for more transparency in drug pricing. Um, in fact, the American Medical Association is just about ready to release a big campaign calling for more drug pricing transparency. Um, there have been over 20 bills introduced in the past couple of years, again, asking for more transparency. The problem I have with this is transparency isn't a policy solution. It needs to be more specific than that. Are you talking about transparency to the government, to the public, to hospitals? And if it's transparency you want, what do you want specifically? What are you reporting? Is it the rebates? Is it the discounts? Is it how, like that, yeah, it needs to be ironed out more. Do you have a, a, a personal answer to that or a professional answer to that? Yeah, so I think personally that we need to do a better job accounting for all of these rebates and discounts and chargebacks um, and that that needs to be reported to CMS or the other appropriate federal agency so that they can do a better job of tracking how all of those payments ultimately influence the price of a drug on a, on a per drug or per patient level. Uh, because right now CMS can't even track the price of the drug through the system. I okay. just literally spoke to somebody the other day about this um, and they you know, see that as a problem. And that should probably be um, public information, right? That's I, a way that they could start. No. Up, no? Well, so I don't know about making all of the rebates public um, because part of the argument is that they need to keep some of this secret so that they can have competition like within their industry and that okay. if it was just public the whole model wouldn't work right so i can't tell you exactly what pieces we disclose and what don't um, but i think at least our government regulators who are supposedly having oversight over all of these transactions should have access better. to that yeah, yeah exactly. all right that's that sounds fair so i've also heard a lot of people um put forward the idea that medicare should have a the ability to negotiate. Yeah. Um, there seems to be some blowback to that idea. What would be the, the pros of having Medicare have more negotiating power or negotiating power at all? And uh, why do people are uh, kind of against, or a group of people against that idea? So in general, it, I think would be great for Medicare to have greater negotiating power um, for drug prices. If you look at what's happening across the healthcare industry, it's essentially everybody's consolidating from the health insurers to the hospital systems to the consumer organizations to drug manufacturers. It's all this jockeying for who has the greatest negotiating power. Um, in general, we're moving towards a system where more and more people are falling under Medicare and Medicaid, and some say eventually towards single payer, but when you have the government or the payer who has more power to negotiate lower prices, then that's good. They're able to get us lower prices. Some people don't like that idea, and particularly um, people in the pharmaceutical industry, um, because the United States is one of the biggest funders of R&D for new drugs. And if the United States significantly um, cuts costs, then that's going to mean potentially less money for innovation. So I don't think they would like that. 
So you'd mentioned um, increasing transparency and negotiating drug prices, as well as uh, giving Medicare some negotiating power in establishing those prices as kind of some potential solutions to the problems that we've discussed. But are there any current um, actual policy proposals that um, involve kind of other methods or what other methods have been proposed to, to sort of solve the problems we've been talking about? Yeah, so I guess this is probably my favorite option because I think it makes the most sense from a, like a market economics uh, perspective and it gets around the whole transparency issue. Um, we were talking about because the market's consolidating, it's not profitable enough for manufacturers to stay in the market, they're leaving, and then the people that are left like increase the prices. So we have problems on both ends for drug prices. They're either really like too high and they're too low. Um, so one way to get around that is to just set the price. Um, and so people talk about this as like regulating drug prices. Um, and the way I like to think about it is like with utilities, you have some like independent um, appointed board that doesn't have any financial stake in the process that works with the government and works with the um, you know electricity producers to say, okay, this is the appropriate price um, per unit. And so we could do that kind of thing for generics and it wouldn't make sense for the brand industry because they do have real like competitive merits and differences between products. But in the generics, like, you know, Advil is Advil. It doesn't really matter. We just want to make sure it works. Um, so I think, yeah, regulating it like a utility um, is, is a good way to do it because then you avoid the unreasonable price spikes. You ensure that the manufacturers are making enough of a profit to stay afloat. And most importantly, you ensure supply for the patients. Yeah, so that sounds, I mean, I think that sounds great. Um, but I just, I can totally imagine like the industry kind of balking at that idea, right? They're yeah. going to hate it. Yeah. So the problem, I think, is that the industry fears that the government is not as nuanced or doesn't have as much of a nuanced discussion as we do. Mm. So when outrages over price increases occur, uh, that can lead to some uh, huge you know, reactionary huge reaction like uh, th that would be for the entire industry you know like the fear is that it doesn't happen only with generics it happens also with brand names mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that would be short-sighted and hopefully they understand the difference I mean, exactly I, but but I think the fear from the industry comes from that yeah I mean yeah and I was at a Senate subcommittee hearing on drug pricing mm -hmm. last year and one of the senators even was like why don't we just regulate it like utility <laughs> just blanket you I mean, know they the get it thing. you know yeah. right um, and so there has been a, a couple of instances now um, of CEOs in the both the biotech and the pharmaceutical industry calling for self-regulation um, to try to prevent, you know, to try to regulate from within, uh, contain the outrage and prevent just blanket policy changes that would They're affect They're basically everyone. trying to save their own skin at this yeah. point. Right. So, so there's a precedent for that when, when uh, Bill Clinton was president and Hillary Clinton was trying to reform healthcare, um, drug price controls were suggested. Then the industry self-regulated and avoided um, that happening. Also, Hillary's health plan failed, but that was secondary. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a precedent for self-regulating and preventing um, policy change 
So there is, if you think that they can effectively like self-regulate, this is like one of the things that I'm learning about working in state government this year is like for some things, like you let them, like you trust people to do some degree of self-policing, but for other things, you need to have the state government or the federal government come in and do a checks and balance kind of thing and regulate and say, okay, are you actually doing what you're saying you're doing? And part of that is that trust piece. And I think the (laughs) generic manufacturers have really lost the trust um, of the public. On that note, and we had, I had just discussed Hillary Clinton. She just uh, released a proposal to control drug prices. Uh, Could we discuss that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I looked it over the other day and I think she's got some really solid ideas in there. She actually wants to let Medicare start negotiating drug prices. She wants to allow for international importation of drugs. Um, She wants to, this is nice, but she wants to cap the out-of-pocket spend for patients at $250 a month, which I think, like we talked about earlier, with all these high-deductible health plans would help decrease the patient cost exposure for drugs. It's also kind of insane that, like, the charitable cap that we're giving yeah. people is, like, $250 a month. Like, that's right. half my rent. I think. Right. So, yeah. Whoa. Okay. You pay. You have good rent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, okay. I mean, I, th- I think those are those are good initiatives. So it'll be pretty interesting, mm-hmm. hopefully, if she wins, uh, to see if she tries to actually enact this. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if self-regulation wins just, you know, by pretending to self-regulate for a little while, the outreach goes away. And then we just re- repeat this episode in like a year. Oh, my gosh. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll keep you in speed dial. <laughs> when uh, this comes up again thank you so much for uh, coming and talking to us uh, I think this was great uh, yeah hopefully hopefully we don't call you again yeah. <laughs> so. only with good news probably but uh, <laughs> otherwise it, it was great and thanks yeah thank you guys yeah. so I realized that this episode was really really policy heavy and um, turned out to be much less about science basically not at all about science not I guess. at all <laughs> um, and I think that that's still really important because we have to realize that we as scientists are part of an ecosystem that converts new ideas into drugs ultimately, um, especially translational scientists. And I think it's a mistake that some people make where they think that policy and economics don't affect us as scientists. Um, and they definitely do, and they definitely affect our industry. So we're going to be doing episodes like this where we maybe talk about policy a little bit more um, so that we can be better informed about those realms of industry and how they affect us. Okay, so after that, uh, it's time for us to once again give you some recommendations and things to listen, watch, and do during your incubation times. Um, So, Will? Um, I've been listening to uh, another podcast, actually. Um, <laughs> it's called Keeping It 1600. It's uh, a couple of guys whose names I don't remember. But one of them It's was a couple of Jims. A couple of Jims or Johns. Oh, it's John. John. Yeah, yeah definitely yeah. John. It's two Johns, I'm pretty sure. Right. And right. one of them is, uh, his name is John Favreau, but he's not the director. He's, uh, was, is or was a speechwriter for Obama. Um, right. And basically, it's just, like, the two of them and, like, I guess some of their friends come on and they just kind of talk about the week in politics. And it's actually really funny. And, um, yeah, it's good. It's, it's like been, an inside baseball 
of politics, right? Yeah, like yeah, I think so. It's pretty, it's hysterical. It's been like keeping me going during the week when I can't get enough um, of my John Oliver or <laughs> Trevor Noah. So, uh, all right. So I wanted to recommend something different this time. Um, and it's a series of how-to videos uh, in which Matthew Madison, a chef, shows you how to cook different foods. Um, he uh, is part of the Bice family, and so uh, you can you can just look on, on YouTube for Matt, Maddie Madison. Um, his videos are amazing. You should watch the ones in which uh, he makes pancakes, or the one where he makes lasagna. But every single one is is. Incredible. Is this anything like those things on Facebook where it's just like the hands uh, pouring stuff into a bowl and then magically something happens? I mean, I, I'm obsessed with those videos. This one is better because math is just hilarious. But the Tasty videos are, are pretty good. I had to unfollow Tasty though. What? Yeah. They were everywhere. You know, it's, it's yeah, one know. of those things in which you see the video and then someone likes it and it appears again on yeah. your feed. Yeah. And then... I don't know, you follow Tasty, but everyone else is following Tasty. And then you have, I have friends in Mexico, so there's like Tasty, oh, Hispanic whoa. Tasty. Wow. Or like... So you're getting it from like all angles. All angles. And oh, then there are I'm, there are like copycats. They're not as good. They're not as no, good. They're not as good. This is, I feel like this is the thing though that it's one of those uh, videos that brings everyone together. Like all my like uh, sort of... Um, how am I gonna phrase this? The French nice side, the of, French the side of my family. family yeah, <laughs> the you know the the what someone called the crazy uncle and crazy aunt who. What about the deplorable side of? Your family? Oh yeah, yeah, topical. So if you had to split my family into two baskets, <laughs> they would uh, be in one. There, yeah, in one basket would be that side of my family. Right, um, right. But and so they post really like. I guess deplorable things, mm -hmm. but also they post these tasty videos, and it's the one thing that keeps me from not following them on Facebook. <laughs> Good strategy. Yeah. Good strategy. It's something that we can all agree on that if you just buy a puff pastry, like a liter of marinara sauce, and like the cheapest pepperoni on earth, and then you just put it in the oven. Well, no, I think well, first you just put them into a bowl. Yeah, exactly. And then you put exactly. that bowl in the oven, yeah, and then yeah, it's yeah. just amazing. Uh, yeah, that's that's my one criticism though. They rely too much on just pouring marinara and cheese and pepperoni and shit. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, but you don't have heartburn, man. <laughs> I need to buy the Tums after too much tomato. And that's a wrap on episode three of Incubation Time. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, again, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. That really helps us get to more people. Uh, I would like to thank Liz Frasica again, uh, an excellent guest and uh, support for uh, you know recording this with us uh, we'd especially like to thank Matthew Herper at Forbes uh, he's a great journalist and uh, wrote some of the best articles on drug pricing which helped us prepare for this episode and as usual thanks to Laura Cohen our producer and uh, a recent PhD candidate links to the articles that we used to prepare this episode can be found in the full description also if you have any feedback for us please send us an email to incubationtime at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at Incubation Time. The music that you heard in this episode was obtained through a Creative Commons license, but go check out the bands Deertick, The Relatives, and Kevin Field. And finally, just a reminder that the opinions that we have expressed in this episode uh, do not necessarily reflect those of our employer, the Johns Hopkins Medical Institutions. Will you please tell me?